I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Boris Ochoa Tokachi. Welcome, Boris, uh, to the podcast. Um, now, you are a hydrologist. So, what is a hydrologist? Hello, Daniel. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, well, yes, I am a hydrologist, and a hydrologist is a scientist who studies water. That is the, the basics of it. Uh, but hydrology is actually uh, more than just an environmental science. Uh, hydrology studies water and all these complex interactions with humans, with animals, with other uh, living beings, but also with the natural environment. For example, even there are hydrologists that are studying how water might have uh, flown in Mars or in other planets. So it, it is all the study of this uh, mixture of atoms in the molecule of water and how this interacts with uh, living beings and with uh, the natural environment. That's a really great definition of hydrology. <laughs> now, um, would you consider yourself to be a student or a teacher or a hobbyist? Uh, what kind of hydrologist are you or what level of your career are you at? I, I consider myself to be a, a hydrological researcher, but also a hydrological advisor. Uh, I actually studied civil engineering at the beginning of my career. Here in Ecuador, civil engineering is uh, that career that you follow when you want to uh, build roads or when you want to build buildings, but also when you want to uh, study water or work with water, for example, for water treatment plants or for sanitation. And then I moved uh, to, to hydrology. So I Right. I did my master's and my PhD at Imperial, and that is where I specialized in hydrology. And right now I am working in, in some consultancy project and, and provides, providing advice to some NGOs and some government governments around the issue of water. And do you find that your civil engineering background um, contributes to the work that you do right now, or is it completely irrelevant? Uh, that's, that's a great question because... When, when I did civil engineering, I didn't know that I wanted to be a hydrologist at the beginning. Uh, but I think uh, the, the, the thing with civil engineering is that we learn how to use mathematics to solve real life problems. And moving to the environmental sciences with that mathematical knowledge and, and with that structure way of thinking of civil engineers, I was able to uh, put that in, into practice. And in hydrology, we actually use a lot, a lot of numbers, for example, for hydrological models or, or when we want to process rainfall time series or flow time series. And we want to look at these relationships between different uh, hydrological variables, then we need to use or I need to use a lot of the skills that I learned during uh, my civil engineering career. And when you say that you are. Uh supply advice or guidance on hydrological issues, uh, you do that as the head of a, a a new, relatively new company, right, Atuk? Yes. Uh, when I came back to Ecuador, uh, I founded with my brothers, actually, a company called Atuk. 
Uh, and I took Dasen stand uh, uh, as an acronym for something, but it is an actual word uh, that comes from Quechua, that is the native language of Ecuador, uh, Ecuador and the South American Andes uh, that comes back from the Inca Empire. Uh, that means wolf. Uh, so we refer to this as, a, as an animal that is traditional here. And also because my surname, Ochoa, uh, that comes from Spain, also means wolf. So that was a way of linking my different heritages in, uh, together into this, this company. And what we do is uh, working with some public and private companies, NGOs, advising them in how they can invest in environmental protection, in hydrological uh, conservation, or for example, wetland restoration or, or other, uh, what we call uh, nature-based solutions or natural infrastructure uh, in a profitable way. For example, how a water treatment a company that has to provide water for a, a big city can invest in their water sources so they can improve the water quantity and quality in the source before it comes to the water treatment. And in that way, they can be more effective and more cost effective in providing those services to a city. That's wonderful. And I love the story behind, behind the name. Um, <laughs> I'm always a big fan of clever names. <laughs> Do you find that hydrology is different in different parts of the world? Uh, like, would your skills be the same in Ecuador as, as in uh, BC? Uh, you know what? I, I haven't actually thought too much about it. I think water is a, this universal element, right? And I think the importance of water is uh, pretty much deep in every country and in every region of the world. Sometimes probably even more in, in, in regions that lack water, that have some water issues like quality or or some or floods or some of these uh, water-related problems. Um, but maybe the importance that this receives in different countries, yes, as you say, might be tremendously different. For example, um, a country like uh, that doesn't have too much water uh, in the, uh, let, let's say the city of, of Dubai. They are in a desert and they have tons of money. So they can just take the water from the ocean, desalinate it, and then use it in, in the city. But there are countries that don't have that amount of money that they can invest in, in, in water, but they still need water for their population. And then they will have to go uh, finding different solutions. And probably uh, me as a hydrologist will think where my skills might be more useful for society. Uh, I know that there are, there, are, there are some times in which I think of uh, my skills would be more useful probably in, in, in countries like my own, that is a developing country, but that doesn't have too much water issues, or if my skills might be more useful in a country that is in, in a very water-stressed area, let's say Somalia, that is also sitting in a desert and, and that depends a lot on groundwater. So I think that the skills that I acquire probably are very useful in different countries, in different settings, but the importance that these different regions might give to water and might give to uh, water professionals uh, uh, will be different. And that will have a huge impact on where I could work or what I could do. There are countries that are much more interested in a more civil, uh, or traditionally traditional based infrastructure projects like building dams or building canals and, and 
and paving everything with concrete. And there are countries that are more interested in nature-based solutions and ecosystem protection and environmental protection. And that will also make a difference on how a hydrologist uh, can feel comfortable working in these different places. Wow, you really um, succinctly explained all the complex <laughs> uh, factors that go into that kind of decision-making. Um, thanks. Yeah, and I, I think just, just to add to that, uh, that trend of going from the more hydrolog, let's say hydraulics oriented uh, hydrology, hydrology science, uh, for example, building dams and canals and reservoirs and so on, uh, towards this more nature-based approach, this ecosystem-based uh, uh, approach, is just uh, very recent. I think maybe 20 years ago, we were a lot focused on, on, on just putting cement everywhere. And now, especially with, for example, the, the release of the IPCC report, we are much more interested in, in nature-based solutions and how we can actually be less influential as humans and much more a uh, nature base. Yeah, you're right. When I was in school, I remember hearing some people talking about how bad concrete was and how we should get rid of it. And um, it always came off as some hippie, um, you know, far off utopian idea. But now it seems I'm hearing this more and more often and it's definitely becoming more mainstream. Yeah, and I, I think there are many institutions that are investing a lot now in, in natural infrastructure, green infrastructure, nature-based solutions. And one of the challenges that we have is to really demonstrate that those are good investments. Because uh, sometimes we want to do some environmental uh, things as, uh, like from a, a philanthropical point of view, we, we say, okay, we we protect nature because that is the right thing to do, but we don't really know what is the positive benefit of doing that. And I think we have a huge challenge in demonstrating that that is a good investment, that when you put money in nature, it is not a waste and it is not doing that just because you're a good person. You can actually make that part of your business and have very good results out. That's a great argument. I love that. <laughs> Now, what got you into hydrology? You mentioned that you did a bit of a shift, but why? <laughs> yeah, I, I I like this question because, as I, as I said, when I did civil engineering, I didn't know that I wanted to be a hydrologist. Um, and I, I actually was writing my dissertation. That, that is like 10 years ago. I was writing my dissertation to become a civil engineer in in pavements, in, in roads. So I was looking at how to model these different uh, asphalt concretes uh, in order to be more effective and how to save resources and so on. But at the same time that I was doing my dissertation, I got involved with some environmental groups, especially youth organizations and, and ecologists. Uh, and that really changed the way in which I was seeing things. I remember I was I was sleeping one, one day, I think it was a Friday, and then a friend called me 5 a.m. in the morning and, and he said, Boris, do you want to go to this ecologist convention? It is only going to be a, to be a few people, but if you want to go, you need to be right now in, in the bus terminal. And that was 5 a.m. And at first, I could, I could have just ignored the call. I don't know why I answered. It was very early in the morning, but I did. And then I was thinking of okay, should I stay this weekend and continue my dissertation or should I go to the bus terminal? And I just woke up, I told my mom, uh, we had breakfast, I went to the bus terminal, I found my friend and we spent this 
a weekend in a in a retreat with these other ecologists, uh, young people that were debating on what are the the issues with the environment in Ecuador in different parts of the country. I think we were only like 15, 20 people, not many. And one week after that, I, I went to the Amazon uh, with an NGO uh, to spend another week with a native company that has been affected by oil extraction. So we got to uh, live with their, eat their food and to see how, uh, for example, some oil companies, they come to exploit these communities that live there, they don't even have the benefits of the development and the money and the wealth that oil extraction can provide. And they just get, for example, a church, a football pitch, and sometimes a, a, a school from, from this because they are also so far away that not even the government provides them with basic services. And I was doing this type of things when, when I was writing my dissertation. And then I thought, why didn't I study something more environmental, uh, something, something like environmental engineering? The truth is that there was no environmental engineering in my university when I did civil engineering. But uh, as a civil engineer, I also studied hydrology and I also studied hydraulics. So that was a way in which I said, okay, if I uh, actually start focusing on hydrology, that is a way in which I can connect the civil engineering that I studied with these environmental issues and these environmental interests that, that I have now as, as a bridge. So hydrology and water, let's say as an element, became that bridge between what I really wanted to do as a passion and what I studied and I was good at in university. Great, wonderful. And then, uh, then you ended up founding your company, right? Yeah. And then sometimes looking back, I say, if I hadn't answered that question at 5 a.m. in the morning, probably I wouldn't have gone to London. I wouldn't have done uh, a lot of the trips and activities that I got to do. So I'm, I'm really I'm really thankful for that. Sometimes you don't even know what moments can change your life. And I am sure for me, that was one of those. Um, now, I'm curious, have you made any uh, big discoveries or, or major successes that you'd care to share? Yeah, there, there is one that I'm really proud of. And I, I have to say that it is not only, I, I cannot take credit alone for it. Uh, this is a, a study that took us five years and we were looking at how indigenous communities in the Andes, pre-Inca, even before the Incan Empire, used to manage water uh, and to solve some of their, their issues that they had with water scarcity and with droughts. So... There was a, the, this big project that an NGO from Peru called Condesang and Imperial College were, were leading that was called Mountain EVO, EVO standing for Envir Environmental Virtual Observatories. And they went to the Andes of Peru to look at how communities manage water and what issues exist with, for example, overgrazing or cultivation in, in, in water source areas. And they found this fascinating pre-Inca type of infrastructure that communities used to use uh, for, for centuries already. I think it is around 1,400 years old. They take the water from streams, they deviate the water using earthen canals, and they let the water infiltrate in the soils. And then the soils act as a natural reservoir for water. So water travels much slower when it is under the surface than, when it, than it does going as runoff over the surface. And that 
allows them to make a bridge between the, the dry season. Uh, so because they only have like four or five months of very intense rains, and then they have the rest of the year just with uh, as a dry season with very dry months, when they put the water in the soils and use it as a reservoir, then the water comes in springs uh, downstream, and they can use that water during the dry season. So uh, as one of the chapters of my PhD, I was quantifying what is the potential that this may have for the local community, but also for a city like Peru, the capital of Lima, that is 10 million uh, people. And we found that if we could replicate these systems, of course, in a huge area, then we would be able to actually solve the water stress problem in the city of Lima. So that led me to, to really uh, believe more in the, uh, in the need that we have for quantitative evidence of these nature-based solutions uh, for water security. And I'm very proud of that research. As I said, it is not only my credit. There are many people that work there, especially the social scientists that had to go there and talk to people and understand how they live with the systems. And the, in, in this idea of replicating them, building the canals and making the physical infrastructure, I think it, it is the easiest part of it. But trying to replicate the social systems around the water infrastructures, that would be probably the more the most complicated thing and probably sometimes even impossible as we keep losing this ancient knowledge and this indigenous knowledge as generations advance. That's really cool. They'd essentially turn the ground into a, a sponge <laughs> that they could squeeze later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is exactly the analogy that we use. Like soils are, are the sponges that retain water and that provide us water during dry season. I'm really impressed that you were able to figure that out uh, centuries later. <laughs> and I'm too, because what's fascinating for me is that centuries ago, they knew how to do this. And, and even now with the science that we have, it is very difficult for us to replicate them. For example, how did they know where to build the canals or, or how did they know what areas are geologically permeable and what areas can can actually store water and where the water is going to come from, where are the springs that the where the water emerges. I think it is just fascinating to know that these peoples knew centuries ago uh, that they can manage water in this way. And you know, like the Incan Empire is very famous for their hydraulic uh, engineers, as, as we call them now, but even pre-Inca uh, peoples, they knew how to manage water to solve their problems. Now, Thinking about more modern work, um, what are you working on right now? Uh, right now, I'm I'm working with a, uh, an NGO that is called Forest Trends. I'm giving them this hydrological advice, as as I mentioned, in a project that is called Natural Infrastructure for Water Security. So to to try to to explain this in in, in hopefully in a very summarized way, like water security is the way in which we can understand water, not only from the physical point of view as this element that we drink and, and that has to be of good quality and that we can use to produce food and, and energy, but as a more integral thing. So for example, when we talk about water security, we say that it is not only having enough water, because sometimes when you have a lot of water is bad when you have a flood. And if you don't have the quality that you need, it is also a, a water security problem. Uh, but there are other problems that are a bit more difficult to see. For example, uh, I was very interested in, in seeing uh, that 
There are some studies that find a relation between the number of dams that are built with the incidence of malaria. Just because the dams create a wa this water surface that is just a, a, a nest for, for mosquitoes. And when you build too many of these dams, especially in tropical areas, even the habitats of the mosquitoes can move and can increase. And that in solving a problem, for example, having more water for irrigation, you can have a, a, a public health problem. And that is also a water security issue. Another one that I'm very interested in is, is water diplomacy. If you have problems between countries or between regions or between a, a company and, and people that is related to water, that is a water security problem. So if we want to look at water security from this very integral point of view, then you need to look at all these different ways in which water influences humans. And one way that we can do that is through nature, like through the, what we call natural infrastructure. So natural infrastructure is looking at the ecosystems, the soils, the vegetation, the geology, the rivers, the slopes, as an infrastructure that has the same, this, the same idea of a building, that you, you can maintain it, that you have to maintain it, that you have to invest in, that if you just leave it, yes, nature is going to thrive, but if you want to get some of these benefits or, or what we call ecosystem services, you can invest in this infrastructure in order to enhance it, and then you can get uh, those benefits. And that is something that has feedbacks with humans. So in managing a natural infrastructure, you can achieve or you can increase your water security. So that is one of the projects that we are working right now with Forest Trends and, and other of, of other NGOs and other uh, institutions, especially in Peru, that is one of the of the most water insecure countries in the world. And I mean that that isn't just something that um, impacts the developing world; even the developed world is impacted by all those factors too. Yeah, exactly. It it was just a few weeks ago that we saw the floods in Germany and the Netherlands. Uh, right now, we are uh, seeing the fires that are happening in Greece, in, in other countries as well. So I, I think nature is really calling us to, to do something. And if we just don't take action, we are doomed. I think nature will overleave us. I don't know if that is how, how you say it, but we won't be able to survive without nature. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned um, that you had this amazing uh, field trip out into the uh, uh, to visit indigenous communities to see how they were impacted by oil exploration. Um, do you get out into the field very often? I I used to before the pandemic. <laughs> and, oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And traveling was traveling is really one of the passions that I have. And, and field work is always difficult because then you, you need to sometimes go to these very far away places without... Uh, any comforts, you have to sleep in a very uncomfortable bed or you have to uh, sometimes uh, not starve, but then you cannot have your meals at the right time or, or sometimes you have to eat something that you're not used to or, or that you don't think it's balanced enough. But apart from that, it is, it is one of the, of the wonders of being a researcher. You get to, to know beautiful landscapes, you get to interact with wonderful people, and you get to really see how welcoming uh, people are. Even sometimes that I've uh, been able to be to go to these 
places that uh, are very poor or that don't have many resources or that live in poverty and they are so welcoming and they offer you what they don't have that is that is really a a, a lesson for life and i used to travel a lot uh, especially during my phd uh, i my my supervisor Walter Viter, he was very keen to to fund uh, a lot of the of the field work that I was doing and sometimes other NGOs like Forest Trends, Condesang, the Water Fund of Quito. And they and, and going to the field is, is as I said one of the, of the wonders of, of being a researcher. Then the, the pandemic hit, I, I've been working at home, uh, working from home, I say like trying to uh, build models to replicate what I cannot do in the field. It, it is not the same, but still we, we have to keep working. Wonderful. Um, one of my favorite parts of these interviews has been hearing field stories. Um, I'm not a scientist myself, so I've never actually gone into the field, but apparently the field is just this magical place where crazy stuff happens. So uh, do you have any fun field stories you'd care to share? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is true. And I, one of one of the things that I, I remember is is that we we usually need to measure rainfall and and, and flow, and to measure rainfall we use the, these buckets that they collect water when it rains and then you go to the you go to see it and then you measure what is the height of the water and then you just uh, empty and and then repeat again and sometimes you have to measure it. For example, every 12 hours or every six hours, that is the, the old way in which uh, these things used to, to, be, to be done. Uh, right now we have electric equipment uh, that solves that issue. But I remember that uh, one time with a professor from Colombia, uh, we had one of these equipment that, uh, that had to be read manually every 12 hours. Uh, 7 a.m., 7 p.m., and then you would know how much water would accumulate during those, those 12 hours. And this professor uh, hired one of the local people to make those measurements because, of course, it was not possible to go to the field and do it every twice a day, actually, uh, in, in this remote location. And then when we came back to see the results after one month, uh, the, 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 my professor asked for the for the this paper sheet that had all the records, and then he saw that there were some days in which it rained a lot, some days that it, it rained a little, but there was always rainfall. So he was asking other people in the community, when how, how were these rains? Because they are actually very very deep, let's say a lot of of rainfall, and they were saying, no, it didn't rain at all during this month. And then, and then we were, we were just. Uh, it was weird to see those results. So we went to ask uh, the guy exactly what happened, and he said, "Okay, look, I came. Uh, this this uh, bucket was empty, and then I came the next day. It was empty again. I came in the afternoon. It was empty. So I just saw that you thought that I was not working. If I if, if I gave you this paper sheet just with zero, 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 you would have thought that I didn't work. So then I started making up numbers. So I put a three here, a two here, a 20 here, a 30 here. And we were like, it, it was so, so bad for research, you know, like because this human error can just ruin your data. But at the same time, I think this highlights how we need to communicate this to people. It is not just a, 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 an issue of hiring somebody and saying, okay, go here and read this number and just write it down in this piece of paper, but really explaining it to people what 
this means, why they are doing it, how this can be useful for them, what this represents, what is the interpretation of this. And people are very eager to know. Uh, I've, I've seen that uh, when we are installing equipment in the field, local communities, they, they are always curious. They want to know why we are doing these things. Because, of course, we cannot just go there. They are the owners of the land and the water, and they deserve to know what we are doing. We don't want to be just these parachute scientists that go there, make a research, publish a paper, and then go away. I love that term, parachute scientist. I'm going to use that from now on. <laughs> it's not a good con not a good way of practicing science, but it's a great way of summarizing the, uh, the uh, yeah, way of doing it. <laughs> uh, and like you said, uh, the local people are the ones who are going to benefit the most from this uh, science too. So it's um, in their interest to know these things. Yeah, and as, as I said, it is. I think we have that obligation as uh, scientists to communicate. And especially to those, as you say, that are going to benefit the most of, of this research. It is not just uh, an, an ego issue of getting a paper published or publishing in this specific journal, but I think we are there to solve problems. And sometimes uh, we, we think of science as this very unachievable thing for, for the common public, and it shouldn't be that way. We need to communicate it, we need to make it accessible, uh, and we need to, to share because I think that is that is really the 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 deeper value in, in this. If we have knowledge, we need to share that knowledge because knowledge is power and knowledge it can make good for a lot of people. I'm curious. You seem to love so much of what you do and it, it all sounds fascinating. But uh, if you had to pick one thing that you love the most, uh, what's the best part of your work? I, I think this is a very difficult question. Um, I, I think that if, if I want to be just very vain, very superficial, I, I would say that traveling is the thing that I love the most because I get to know all these, these, these beautiful places and, and, and to talk to different people. Uh, but if I want to go deeper, I think that I, what I appreciate the most is to feel that I am useful. And I think going back to the to the one of the first questions that you made, when I said I could sometimes I wonder if uh, working in my own country is the best thing to do, if there are other places that might need my skills more, or or if there are areas in which I can contribute more than than here. I just want to feel useful, and I want to feel that I, I am solving a, a problem, especially if this problem has global implications. Uh, that is why I, I was so proud of the research that we made around this, this water sowing and harvesting practice uh, that the Prink has uh, used to use, uh, because I, I think of them as having these global implications that can be applied in different places, that it is not only an issue of developing uh, countries, but can be applied widely. And even the approach is, is very, uh, very wide. Um, so I think that probably what I love the most is to feel that I have an impact, that I can make an impact, that I can uh, hopefully have a legacy in the world and not to lose hope. Like, again, like talking about the climate crisis that we just uh, read in, in, in the report, I think we need to do more. And, and again, as scientists, we need to communicate, we need to share, I think, what I love the most is to feel that I can have an impact in the world. 
And I think you made the right decision in, in staying in Ecuador, um, because, I mean, who knows Ecuador better than Ecuadorians? Uh, you know, all the stuff that um, someone like me, if I were to come in and try and do a project in Ecuador, I might not even think of, but could be really important for that country. Yeah, and you are very welcome to come. Uh, there are there are many uh, scientists and many people that are coming here from other countries to study. Ecuador is one of the most biodiverse countries in, in the world. And there are many things to know. You know, like the, for example, our part of the Amazon basin is still unexplored for a lot of, of reasons. And, and hopefully that exploration is not for economic reasons or just to de uh, deforest the Amazon or to extract resources, but really to learn from it. There is, I think, a lot of genetic uh, material that we could learn from, a lot of plant species that we don't know about yet, a lot of animal species that are being discovered every other week. And there are many things to do. And there are a lot of scientists that uh, come here. There are a lot of people that come to the country and, and fall in love with it. So you are very welcome to come. And and I, I also appreciate the, your your comment. I'm also happy of, of being in Ecuador right now. And I've heard that the country is fairly responsible in uh, how it protects its natural uh, resources. Yeah, I, I, I think there are... Uh, the the population in general, I think we feel very proud about uh, the biodiversity of the country and about the landscapes and so on. And we haven't done everything well. Uh, we still extract oil. We are still are we are still going th uh, towards a, a more uh, big scale mining uh, economic model. But I think. There are many things that we've done right. For example, the protection of the Galapagos Islands, the creation of the water funds that are these mechanisms to invest in, in nature to provide water to, to cities in, in a more integral way, as I was saying, with nature-based solutions and so on. And I think Ecuador is a pioneer in many things. And because we are just uh, still a small country and with not a lot of economic uh, power, we cannot really have uh, the impact that we would like to have. So, so one of the of the projects that I remember when I was studying civil engineering, I think this was also around 10, 12 years ago, e Ecuador proposed an initiative called Yasuni Itete that had the objective of leaving the oil that was discovered in the Amazon underground and asking for an international compensation. So instead of extracting the oil and selling it to uh, other countries, Ecuador came out with this proposal and, uh, to, the, to the UN saying, we've found this oil, but we don't want to exploit it. We want to leave it underground, but uh, we would at least require to have a fraction of the money that we would get if we extract it and sell it. Uh, and unfortunately, it was, it was not uh, well received. I think only Germany committed $300 million, but the total value of the of the oil was uh, around $18,000 million at the time. So it was it was not well received, it was not well promoted. And at the end, Ecuador decided to go there and exploit the oil at, uh, after all. Uh, but right now, just 10 years after that, we are seeing a lot of initiatives that are very similar to this. Like uh, we protect the forests and we get a compensation. We protect these resources, uh, for example, oceans, and we can get a compensation for that. And I think it is good because nature, it is probably more valuable, alive and conserved than it is just exploited and, and put in, in human resources. 
that's a really progressive mindset. I'm I'm really impressed. I didn't, didn't know about that. Yeah, as I said, it, it it for me it was one of the most wonderful ideas, and it just didn't receive the attention that it should have. Now you also mentioned that you like to travel, uh, so I've got a tough question. Uh, where's your favorite destination, or where's the the best place you've ever visited? <laughs> I think I think that is also a, a very difficult question because all the places that I visited they have they have something special. And I think here we can have again like the the more politically correct answer and the and the more like selfish uh, answer. Um, but I I think there are places that I would like to go as that I would call my favorite destinations, but I haven't had the opportunity yet to to visit. Uh, and. And if I can skip that question, probably that will be better. But there, there are many, many wonderful places that I've, I, I visited. For example, when I was just starting my PhD, I went to, um, there, there was this mountain video project that I mentioned before, was working in, in the Himalayas, in the Ethiopian highlands and in the Andes. And I, I got to, to travel to Nepal. In this area that uh, usually if you're a tourist, you have to pay a lot of money for the entrance and all the logistics are very complicated. But in this case, we were exonerated because we, we are scientists. And I, I went to this Buddhist uh, temple and they, I, I saw these kids dressed in, in orange and, and, and with, the, with the bulbs. And it was just amazing to see a culture that is so different from mine. So I think probably also this answer could be biased because uh, I am so used to see the landscapes here with the mountains in the Andes and, and the colors that we have in Ecuador and the and the warmth of people and so on, that when I go to a different place, it strikes me in a positive way because I, I get to see other faces, other peoples, other cultures, other traditions, other types of food. And food is one of the things that I also love, love a lot. And I... Uh, sometimes might overlook what I have in my own country or what I have in my own region. And when I start seeing these contrasts, then I see, yeah, I, I say, okay, yeah, no, I'm really happy to be here in Ecuador. And probably Ecuador is one of my favorite destinations as well, even though it is my, my home country. No, that's perfect. <laughs> okay, so... You've talked about the best part of your work. What would you say is the worst part or the most challenging part of your work? Uh, I think I would have to say fieldwork again, because it is sometimes it is so difficult to to do. You want everything to be so perfect, especially because you go to these to these very uh, far uh, places. And there have been times in which I've gone to the field and it has been raining continuously. I I was not able to to do any work because we need to use electronic equipment and then the protecting, for example, a computer under under the rain is not is not easy task. Or it is so cold and sometimes we ha we have had to camp and, and just stay the night in the mountains and it is freezing. It is so humid. We don't have uh, food and and the only thing that we are eating is probably some uh, some. Um, Cookies, but the, what is the name of, of like a biscuit with with tuna and canned tuna and, and things like this, uh, and we have to uh, 
put on a tent and in the middle of the rain and sleep there. So I think that is probably the most challenging challenging part if from the actual experience of, of doing the research. But from the experience of, uh, let's say, applying the research into, into something that can be useful or can be more impactful, there are also some things that I, I, I don't like. Sometimes when you obtain evidence, you have these quantitative findings and you have something that is actually very applicable and that could be put into policy making and then you go there and then you expose it to, uh, you present it to policymakers and decision makers and they, they just don't hear and they just don't make that part of their decisions. I think that is probably the most frustrating and most challenging part of the work. When you feel that you can actually make a difference, but there are other forces that are not scientific that block that from happening. And I think probably that is the thing that I, I like the least. Yeah, we're, we're definitely seeing that um, science is being ignored in favor of uh, non-scientific biases uh, in many different fields, especially uh, during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. I like sometimes that is one of the reasons why I don't use WhatsApp or Facebook or, or some of the other apps. Uh, just because so many fake news and so the, uh, misinformation that is, is going around there and, and sometimes people listen to them. It, it is like you hear 10 fake news and one real uh, news. And sometimes it is difficult even for a person that is uh, just bombarded by that type of information to really discern what is good, what, what is bad, to put a filter and to say this is correct, this is not. Because uh, people are so exposed to, to many things and we don't usually have a critical way of, of filtrating it. We sometimes in schools or or in other places, we don't learn how to make that difference between what what is actual real information and what is just fake information. And sometimes with very uh, terrible uh, um, objectives, like I, I don't think that fake news are, are just there to because some, some person wanted to entertain or some person wanted to make uh, to have fun. I think fake news have an agenda and it is very difficult to sometimes to know what agenda that is and what is actually fake and what is actually real. Do you have a personal litmus test to determine what's real or what's not? Or do you just go from trusted news sources? I think probably it is, it is easier in my field to, to try to make that distinction and one of one of the issues that, for example, uh, it it is very common in in what I do in hydrology, is talking about trees and talking about forestation. When when projects when we talk about nature based solutions and natural infrastructure and trying to use nature to to uh, have better water security, as as I was saying, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is planting trees. And then people say, okay, we need to reforest all this area. We need to, to plant trees here and here. And then uh, from the research that we've done here in the Andes, but also in other places in the world, uh, trees are living beings and they consume water. And sometimes when you put trees in an area that doesn't have trees, they are just going to deplete the water. They, don't, they are not always sponges. They sometimes act as water pumps. 
And I think that is one of those misleading ideas that I, I also consider kind of those fake news when you see, oh, the government is going to plant 100,000 trees or 1 million trees, and, and this is going to solve droughts. And it's not true. And that is something that I can know because of the research that I've done around hydrology, around land use change, and, and around nature-based solutions. But this is only about the issue that I know. And for example, in, in fake news that have to do with health in the context of the pandemic, I don't know. I am not a doctor, a medical doctor, I mean, because I am. A... <laughs> but, and, and there, I think probably the best thing that we can do is try to ask a professional. And hope, uh, fortunately, I have two uncles that are doctors medical doctors, so I can go to them and they can, I can ask when I have a doubt or sometimes in the, in this in this family uh, group chats, uh, fake news comes in and then one of them would uh, deny that and they would say, no, this is not true because of this, this and that. And I think when we have the chance, we need to look uh, to professionals and we need to look to a second opinion to other sources just to contrast that before we make any decision that is uninformed. That's a great way of, of approaching it, I think. <laughs> now, I'm curious, um, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And um, if so, do you feel, feel like that's impacted your studies or your career? I I would, I think that is very context dependent. Of course, in, in Ecuador, I, I, am a, I am a Latino, I, am, I come from a developing country. So when I was in London, yes, I, I felt part of a, a minority there. When I am in Ecuador, let's say that I feel a part of uh, of the majority, if if you want to put it that way, but I think some some of the things that I think might not be mainstream yet. For example, I it, there are some issues that we still need to solve in Ecuador. For example, those around gender, uh, when a lot of the population is still sexist, is is still male oriented, and and there are a lot of uh, scientists that I know here that are women that deserve space, that deserve to be acknowledged and recognized. And I think those are the things that I might not be able to uh, to leave myself uh, in Ecuador because I am not part of that minority, but I am aware of those inequalities. Whereas when I am in London and I am part of the minority because there I am, I am Latino and let's say I, I am young or I, I was young and... I came from different experiences. I, I think uh, then I felt part of a, I, I felt part of, of of a group that was not the mainstream. But I think uh, the, that is what we need. We need diversity in science, especially because we can bring different opinions and we can bring different experiences, and that can uh, enrich science as well. Uh, that is why I also found fascinating these these pre-inca technologies because that that brought a different way of thinking into the hydrological science that I do. It was combining indigenous knowledge with with modern science and and trying to see how they complement each other. And I think those are the issues that we don't see too much when. Uh, science usually is dominated by northern countries, especially the US and Europe, and, and by straight, white, uh, ma uh, male scientists, and by specific, uh, specific demographics that are uh, more represented in science. And I think other demographics, we have a lot to give to that. 
And I think science is, is, is diversifying a bit, but probably not at the, at the pace that it should. Because society in itself is very diverse. And I think science needs to follow that trend. And we are still way behind that. And having a, a diversity of, of perspectives and opinions is always really useful, even within yourself. Uh, you mentioned that your early education was in engineering. And that's probably uh, strengthened um, your career in, in the long term because you have that diversity within yourself, uh, science and engineering within the same person. Yeah, and I and I'm really thankful for that. And another thing that I'm I'm thankful for my uh, earlier experiences is is not be too concentrated in in the numbers and the engineering and the science uh, uh, because of my of my parents. My my dad. He was a lawyer and he he didn't solve the the common cases of going to court sometimes he he used to that but but especially he worked with local communities indigenous communities organizations for example uh, legalizing some of the of the banks that they had or some of the organizations that they had and he used to take me and my brothers to to his trips sometimes, and it was a, a way to really see that the that the world that we live in, although it was still inside Ecuador, it is more than the four blocks around your house. It is you you get to see different cultures, different peoples, and probably that is also why I like I, I love traveling so much. And but that approach to to people from that a social point of view, I think it is also very useful now. When I, for example, have to go to the field or when I'm working on my research or trying to apply it in different countries like Peru or Colombia or Bolivia, that I think that I can, I have benefited a lot from those earlier experiences in my life. Now, I'm curious, um, as a field, do you feel like hydrology is really open and welcoming or is it a little more uh, insular and um focused on, on its existing members? I, I, think, I think it is quite opening, but it, I think it also depends where. Uh, and probably my experience is biased because uh, maybe if you're in a country in which sciences are much more established, let's say the US that has a, a lot of universities, a lot of hydrological scientists and, and so on, might have a different context. But in Ecuador, where we had a boom in hydrology from, I think in, in the 2000s, where a lot of research has started in, in the mountains, in the Andes, and, and we wanted to know more about water issues and, and so on, uh, that it became a, a welcoming science. And I have uh, one of my cousins, uh, she is a hydrometeorologist and she is doing a great work in that studying climate change and studying weather uh, patterns in, in the mountains as well. Uh, and there are many women and many, uh, let's say, people uh, like me as, as, as well that are entering into hydrology. And I think uh, it, it is pretty much because of, of, of the early stages of, of hydrology here that it is still very open. And I hope that it continues being like that. Um, and probably it is the same for other sciences as well, at, at, at least because we are just starting, starting having these the scientific developments in, in the country. And, and probably that is the reason why it is still very open. And again, I hope that it doesn't close. Um, I've seen many uh, uh, nice uh, 
scientists in, in other countries, for example, in the UK where I was and, and in, 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 for example, in Ethiopia, where I went to visit also with that project, uh, that learn, that know their environment much better than just a visiting scientist. So I think from my experience, and I said, because probably this is very biased, I've seen that it is a, a very uh, welcoming and open science. Wonderful. I had no idea it was so young in Ecuador. Um, yeah, 20 years. That's just a blink of the eye. Exactly. I, I mean, there, there must have been heterologists before, but not, not as now. Like, heterology really had a steep progress, a steep evolution in the last years. Uh, but there was a paper that uh, we actually published in 2020 in which we were uh, praising that uh, evolution in hydrological and eco-hydrological research in the last 20 years. Because uh, starting from uh, the 90s, there were just one paper here and there about the mountains, about how they are important in ecological terms and in hydrological terms. But it is really in the last 20 years, from 2000 to 2020, that eco-hydrological science just exploded. Like there, there are now a lot of research, a lot of papers that talk about the importance of water, that how the ecosystems here store water, how they release it, how they can, uh, how the water yield is, how the water, the weather patterns are and so on. And I'm also surprised that it is, it is just 20 years because water is something that we have to live with every day. Now, you've painted a really cool picture of um, hydrology. And so if anyone's listening right now and wants to follow in your footsteps, um, what courses or, or background or experiences would you recommend they uh, pursue in order to follow in your footsteps? I, I would recommend, I, I, I think that it is, it is useful to have a, still a diverse background, still a, a, a diverse set of skills that you can use in your future career. Of course, uh, you definitely need to know mathematics. That is what I said from the beginning. When you learn engineering, you learn how to solve problems using mathematics. And when you are a hydrologist, you have to know that for the models and for the time series and all the numbers that you have to crunch. Uh, but it is also, use, also useful to know uh, for ex even human relations. And I think sometimes we overlook the, the those aspects like the soft skills as they are called and although they are the hardest to master <laughs> but especially if you want to go to the field and you want to to be a field hydrologist you need to know that you need to to be a, a bit skillful in how to how to put on how to put a tent how to cook some food how to really communicate to people how to to be easy in 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 the in the in the way in which you express or or how to be direct in the way in which uh, you require something um and 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 even politics are useful if you want to be uh, in the field of water diplomacy, then you need to know like different cultures and how the different peoples can perceive uh, what you say, what you do. Uh, if you want to be more, more of a modeler and being in the lab or in the office, then probably it is better to, to go to the basic sciences that you know, like chemistry, physics, uh, and, and, and those. But I think having a, a diverse set of skills, either because you took you take them at school or because you develop by yourself at home or, or extra uh, curricular, it is, it is going to be good for any science that you want to pursue. Wonderful. And I absolutely agree. Um, like you said, being able to communicate your science, uh, being able to relate to people, 
um, the people that you're working with and, and um, whose communities you're working in is incredibly important, especially for hydrology, I, I would suspect. Um, now, looking back to your field of studies, uh, did you find anyone who was really inspiring or who uh, really helped you get through your studies? There, there, are, uh, there is one person that I consider one of my... How would you say it? Not not only like a, a tutor, but also a, a person that I can look up to. And he's he's Verde Bieber. He's a hydrologist from Belgium that came to Ecuador when he was probably twenty years old, twenty one years old or so. And he, uh, even though he's as as I said, Belgian, he established in Ecuador with the same idea that I talking to him in in, in present days. I realized that we have that same idea of where we can feel useful, where we can feel that we can make an impact. And after I graduated from university and I started working in, in hydrology, it was, it was with him in this NGO called Condesan. And he has been a, a figure that I can look up to because he doesn't stop just in the numbers. It, it is not just saying, okay, the, the calculations say this and this is what we have to do, but he's really looking into the bigger picture. Uh, how people can perceive different solutions uh, that we can we can provide. We cannot go to the field and, and tell people, for example, okay, stop cultivation, stop grazing, because we need to protect the environment. That is, this is the only thing that we have to do, because that is not how the world works. We need to be much more open-minded. We need to find solutions that are useful for people and at the same time useful for the environment. We need to be much... Uh, we need to think uh, wider. We need to, again, look at the bigger picture. And I think he's one of those people that I can learn a lot from. And I still work with him. He's now in the in the Water Fund of Quito. He's the, the head of the Water Fund. And we've been doing some studies lately on, on finding the economic value of that investment in nature, uh, trying to calculate the return on investment, uh, saying, for example, if we invest this amount of millions of dollars in the environment, then we can get this amount uh, of millions of dollars back in, in water treatment or, or in benefits for uh, people and the society. And he is, is probably one of those, uh, uh, if you want to say, hydrology rock stars that I've got the pleasure to, to know and that I really look up to. That really uh, harkens back to what you were saying before about how you need to make um, essentially a business case for your science because science for science sake is very rarely um, compelling. You have to show people why it's in their interest um, to follow the science, to protect the environment and, and things like that. Yeah. And well, and especially because we, we live, we live in, in, in this economic uh, system, right? Uh, and because we need to uh, we need to go with the system, then yeah, we have to prove the economic value. And sometimes uh, I argue that although we, we, we talk about an economic benefit, we don't necessarily think of the economic benefit as money. For example, uh, when we talk about some of the projects and we want to estimate what is the, the benefit that we get from it, we say if we can increase the river a base flow by three cubic meters per second, it is not just having water and it is not just having water that you can monetize. But it is, for example, something that can translate into a, a, a situation that can improve livelihoods. For example, 
There are uh, many communities in which women are responsible for providing water to the household, and they invest several hours per day or per week in getting that water to the household. If we can increase river flow in those dry periods, we can probably reduce the amount of time that women have to travel to get that water. If that time that they save can then be invested in education or in getting a paid job, that is good for them. And that is also an economic benefit. It is more difficult to see and it is much more difficult to quantify. But I think those are the types of benefits that we, we can see. And uh, so sometimes when we, we think or when I talk about economic benefits, it is difficult to explain what I mean, because it, it just it just looks so capitalistic. Right. We say, OK, money, water, money, and that's it. But in reality, we are trying to look at all these different ways in which what we do for the environment can actually translate for a better livelihood for so many people that actually need this. Those invisible benefits are probably the biggest uh, benefits that we derive from protecting the environment. And yet, because they're invisible, um, or what we would say is invisible, they're just so much harder to name and describe uh, when you're trying to make the case for a project. Yeah, definitely. And I, I would say they, they are invisible. And not only the benefits, but the, even the problem. Sometimes... Uh, we don't see that these inequalities exist. Sometimes we don't see that there are changes that we can make just by, by or there are impacts that we can make just by little changes that we can do. Now, you've been quite inspiring today. Um, and I know that uh, you really get a lot out of inspiring the next generation as well. Um, I believe you work with students or, or you have students who work for your company. Um, uh, that's correct, right? Yeah, we have we have some some interns and some uh, young people that are starting their careers in sometimes in the NGOs that uh, I work with or sometimes in, in a took as well in the company. What do you look for when you choose these young people? Uh, I, I I would say that I, I like people that they challenge themselves, that I think that they have critical thinking, that they have an open mind. Uh, Yes, we like people that are sec uh, very secure of what they know or on, on what they say. But I think it is probably more difficult to find people that are actually flexible and versatile and to and that are able to assimilate and learn and to also share what they know. Um, I think that we never stop learning. And uh, even though I am not a professor, I am not a teacher, so I don't have students per se, I think that the opportunity that we have to interact with young people uh, it is useful because we can share and we can also learn. I think it is, it is a, a, a two-way uh, thing. I, I think we, we learn and we can, we can also uh, share uh, from di uh, different people. And what we try to do is, is exactly that. Uh, for example, uh, in in what we're doing at Tuk is uh, we share uh, everything that we do. We we also have a podcast actually in which we are inviting people to talk and and we of course these are very short uh, episodes but we want to not only talk about what they know and the science but we also want to talk as as you do here about what are the personal personal background behind that. That is something that we started doing with. Uh, a um, communication company that is also a, a made by, by young people here in Ecuador. And with the NGO is that I work like Condesa and Forest Trends, 
there are uh, some people that go there, they do their thesis and they do the, their internships and they ask me, uh, how do I go to London to do my PhD or how, what do you recommend to, uh, for uh, doing a master's and so on? And I think uh, sometimes I, I, I feel that I cannot really give a lesson and saying, oh, you need to do this A, B, C, D. There is no recipe. Of course, but I think uh, perseverance and, and openness and a, a, a versatility, critical thinking, all those attributes are those that you need to have and never stop being yourself and being humble because you need to, you need to learn that for even if you do a, a, a degree, a master's, a, a PhD, a postdoc, it doesn't mean that you are worth more than other people. Because you, there are things that, even though you know a lot, there are many things that we don't know and that we will never stop learning. And I think probably that is the, the biggest lesson that we have. We will never stop learning and we shouldn't stop learning. I think that's a great message to uh, put out there. Uh, even though you're an expert in one field, doesn't mean you're an expert in all fields. Um, and just like you said, be humble and keep learning. <laughs> Now you're at the relatively relative beginning of your career. Uh, you're still fairly young. Um, I want to look at the end of your career, way off in the future. What would you like to be the legacy of your career when you eventually retire? I I really hope at, at the at the pace that we are going as humanity. I really hope that by the time I'm retiring, I would be able to to say as a generation that we were able to make a change in the right time to reverse this trend that we are seeing. I wouldn't like to, to arrive to, let's say, 2050. I don't know when I will retire, to be honest. But I wouldn't like to arrive to 2050 and just see a world that is completely messed, uh, that has a lot of problems that with the strange nature, that climate change is going to just to kill us all. I wouldn't like to, to get to that point. So if uh, there is some legacy. I wouldn't like it to be just mine and I wouldn't like it to be something that I, as a person, can feel proud of. I would like to see that we as a generation were able to make the right decision uh, at the right time and we reverse the problem that we are in right now. Now that's you. Um, what about your field? Where do you find it's going? Because I find that very often the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career uh, these days is now completely different at the end of their career. Uh, so where do you see hydrology going and what advice do you have for young people so that they can anticipate some of those changes? I think some trend that I really have seen in hydrology is that it is, it is becoming more multidisciplinary. I think uh, before it was hydrology as water and rainfall and stream flow and, and that's it. And now we talk about eco-hydrology and we see the relationship between plants and water and we talk about uh, social hydrology and we see the relationship between water and people and I think what I see is that hydrology is is becoming more interdisciplinary and more multidisciplinary and it is going into different fields we need to stop thinking of the water cycle as just what we learned in school that it is just it drains it it flows and it evaporates and drains again i think it is much more complex than that now we have dams and now we have people that use water and the crops and and we have all these processes the uh, uh, transfers between basins and and issues with 
uh, as, as we were saying, uh, public health related to water or, or wars and conflicts related to water. And I think looking at the water cycle from this point of view that is much more complex than just the molecule of water moving in the environment, I think that is uh, where hydrology is going. And I think that is what uh, young people that are interested in hydrology need to go to. Uh, so probably uh, we will see the, the end of hydrology as a, as a pure science. Maybe we won't have hydrologists in the future. In the future, we will have eco-hydrologists and gender hydrologists and social hydrologists. And, and that is great because I think that in the same way that water is so important for many aspects of our life in the day to day, hydrology can also be a, a science that is useful for all these other sciences day to day. I've never heard someone so effectively argue for the end of their own scientific field, but uh, it makes sense. And I, 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 I share your vision now. Well, Boris, those are all the questions I have. Um, is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? Uh, I, I think I think we talked a lot about many different things, and um, maybe we will have another opportunity, probably face to face to talk. Uh, but I've really enjoyed uh, all the questions that you've had and, and talking to you. And I've really enjoyed your passion and your expertise and your uh, your perspective on this uh, really important but uh, often underrepresented field of science. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to Honor. Honor is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.